I've just spoken to a woman that I've admired for such a long time. Although we've been in touch over the years, this is the first time I've had a chance to sit down with her and have a good natter. Rosamond Dean is not only a renowned journalist and author of the utterly brilliant Mindful Drinking and Reconstruction, she's a woman that, through sharing her own vulnerabilities and experiences, has just helped countless others just navigate their own cancer and well-being journey. She's just so approachable and down to earth and her wisdom through her learned experience is unbelievable. It's such important work Rosamond is doing, changing the language and the landscape around cancer and encouraging us to speak out more and be aware. I know you're going to love this. There may be a few tears. It is full of her own journey that was literally hellish, but I'm super grateful because I feel enlightened and empowered. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Rosamond. Such a pleasure to be actually spending time together. We we chat. I think it's like lots of people, you know, you chat online and you have these times together, but not sort of like, I know we're in 2D right now, but at least we can see each other. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to see your face and be able to chat. Absolutely. Are you hot right now? Very hot. Yes. yes. Heat wave. You're looking very collected, I have to say. I'm looking less collected at this mo- moment in time. <laughs> it's just quite hard to do anything and, and feel collected, isn't it? I think we're both just looking summery. That, Let's just go with summary. Summary. A little bit <laughs> yeah. of shine and summary. Yeah. Um, it's just wonderful to be talking to you. You're a renowned journalist, author of the brilliant Mindful Drinking and Reconstruction, a public speaker, and I, for one, have learned so much from you and your journey with cancer that you've shared with us so generously. Um, And I know you've been working on really demystifying um, and shining a light on breast cancer and encouraging us women to be more aware. So can I just say, firstly, just thank you. Um, It's going to be a great conversation. I have really looked forward to this one. Um, I also saw... um, you know, just wanted to talk to a fellow weight trainer here, um, <laughs> that you've been weight training. And and I, as I said, I, I've started weight training as well. But I love that you've been speaking about sort of the myth of exercise. Yes. We're brought up, aren't we? And we're going to talk about the magazines that you worked on. But, you know, that it's all about vanity rather yeah. than our actual health. Tell me about that. Has that been quite a eye-opening experience? Absolutely. I think like anyone who grew up in the, I was a teenager in the 90s and in my first job in the early noughties, and it was very much this culture of exercise is to lose weight. You know, Mm. people would talk about going to the gym to work off a a big meal or a night out or something, or they would talk about, um, you know, exercise when you, if you did go to the gym, all the gym machines would kind of tell you how many calories you were burning for each thing you were doing. And I just feel like that attitude just lets everybody down because it's not, lots of research has now shown it's not the case that exercise equals weight loss. There are, there are many, you know, weight, the the shape and size of a person's body is multifactorial. There are many different reasons to do with their genetics, their hormones, their environment, so many different things. So to say you can just go to the gym and lose weight I think is not fair on people who do want to lose weight. Mm. And then people who, for whatever reason, genetically just don't feel like they need to lose weight. It 
it's like saying to them, you don't need to exercise, which is ridiculous because everybody needs to be moving their bodies. There are so many health benefits. Yeah. And I, I, and I think we grew up in exactly the same time. So I know exactly what you mean. Um, I also know um, since you were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2021, you've mm. been sharing lots of important um, information and helping so many people. And so I really want to talk about that today. But I want to start, if that's okay with you, going back to the young Rosamond and actually your childhood and your early life, because I read that you grew up in the historic Stirling, Scotland. Was it a happy childhood? Yes, I would say it was basically a happy childhood. Yes. Tell me more about it. I suppose it's fair to say I always felt like a bit of an outsider because, well, my parents are English and they met at university in Scotland and I was born there but I do feel going going to school in Scotland with an English accent is not the most not not the most fun fun scenario uh so yeah it I was a bit of an outsider in in terms of that but I did you know I had a really really loving family and my parents divorced when I was quite young so it was my mom and my sister and me in our house and it was I like to say it was like have you seen the film Mermaids? With Cher and Winona Ryder. Of course we saw it. Yes. I love that. From the 90s. From the 90s. Yes. Yeah. And Cher is like this cool single mom and Winona Ryder and Christina Ritchie, I think, are her kids. And it's it's like, I mean, our family life did not have the dramas that they did, but the... um, you know, the kind of dancing around the kitchen and the being kind of girls to, to get, like, it was, it was nice. It was a, yeah, very happy childhood. Oh, that's... It was, my mum made being a single parent look easy. And then when I had kids of my own, I was like, oh, hang on, how did she, how did she, how did she do how that? How did she do that? How did she do that? And what did you like at school? What did you excel at? I suppose English. It's boring. Yeah, well, boring. I was going to hope that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved reading. I loved writing. And English was definitely my favourite subject. To be honest, I quite liked school. I was a bit of a spod. Were I, you? I, I wasn't very sporty. I would say PE was the one thing that I hated. I used to hide in the toilets when it was yes. sports day. I, Me too. You know, <laughs> I just hated it. Absolutely. And, and especially anything competitive, I just couldn't stand it. You know, we had these terrible uniforms when we were in sports. I mean, I've seen someone, I don't know who was doing it recently, talking about why do they make girls wear these most horrific outfits for sports and then wonder why, as we're going through adolescence, we don't want to do sports. I had, all I can describe it was poo brown Gym shorts, but they look like you know, like the covers that you would put on a nappy. Do you know what I mean? Like they weren't like shorts. You know what I mean? Gym pants, gym pants, and an uh, and a mustard greeny wee colour air techs. Wow! Now, (laughs) tell me, you have to have a certain type of body to pull that off, regardless, right? So it was absolutely horrific. And then getting yeah, netball and all these sort of sports. It was yeah. I, yeah. I think we're the yeah. same era, aren't we? I think the whole format of PE in school doesn't do kids any favours because it makes the non-sporty kids feel like they're kind of crap at it and it makes the super sporty kids, it, well, it kind of holds them back because like, they're a bit like, what am I doing here? I could be like running laps around this bunch. Yeah. Like there's, it's kind of, there's no, it doesn't really help anyone. No, and, uh, Yeah, I I don't know anyone that loved PE at school. No, no. And I wouldn't be friends with them if they did anyway. So (laughs) there we are. So were you a bookworm as a child? Definitely, yes. I mean, to be honest, I just loved magazines. Magazines were my big love. Tell me what your first magazines were. Smash Hits, definitely. I loved Smash Hits in just 17. I was just obsessed, absolutely obsessed. I got them, Smash Hits was fortnightly, I think, but I got just yeah. 17 every week. Um, and then as I got older into my teenage years, I loved The Face and Select and Sky. And the, yes. the, I just, I loved magazines. It's I, I, I just think it's such a shame that, that yes. you know, that so many of them have closed and just reading magazines is not the special thing for young people that it 
that it once was, that it was for me when I was a teenager. That makes me I, sound incredibly old. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, everybody. We're actually still very young women here. Um, but Smash It's, do you remember they used to have the lyrics of songs? Yes. And I yes. used to cut those out, stick those on the wall, and I would just have all these lyrics and then dance around my room sort of singing the lyrics. It was just yeah. absolutely brilliant. And you're and right. record the songs off the radio. Yes. On the cassette. On the cassette. <laughs> absolutely. Top of the pops. You know, yeah. like we would record it. Was, there's a magic about it, isn't there? And my my niece has just got Beano. She gets it delivered every single week, and we yeah. sit and we love reading it. There's something so magical about it coming in the post. And of course, basically all of this that your sort of childhood and your your bookwormness and all of this sort of transpired into you landing your first job on the entertainment desk at Marie Claire. And I know that you went on to work on the launch of Grazia and all my favourite magazines. Magazines, Red, Psychologies, L, Stylist, just to name a few. Um, were you always ambitious? Did you sort of know the career that you wanted to pursue? I would say yes. I was just obsessed with magazines, like I said, and living in a small village in Scotland where it just felt like nothing ever happened. <laughs> I, magazines were like a window into a world of like excitement and glamour and famous people and fashion. It was just so exciting to me. And I remember there was a program on Radio One about um, how to get into magazines, how to work in the magazine industry. And I remember I recorded it on a cassette and I used to listen to it over and over again. And they said, you need to do work experience. So I wrote off to all these magazines um, when I was about 15 to apply for work experience. And I got a work experience placement at Top of the Pops magazine. And, uh, and mum said, I just like went up to her one day and said, do we know anyone who lives in London? And I need to go to London for two weeks. I've got work experience. And she was like, what? <laughs> I get completely out of the blue. And um, yeah, an, an old friend of hers who she hadn't seen in years lived in London. And she called them up and said, oh, hello. Uh, nice to be back in touch. Can my daughter come stay with you for two weeks? <laughs> quite an and, ask actually isn't it yeah. quite an ask two weeks not two days two weeks exactly. and, so, and that opened up this world for you um tell me about that time in your life because um then when you actually got your job um you were in your early 20s if I'm right and I can imagine it was a pretty fast-paced environment um I worked in advertising in my early 20s um so I remember it was quite a lot of fun was it the same for you yes it was a lot of fun. It was in my early 20s, I would say I never had dinner at home. Every single night there was something after work that we could go to, whether a film screening or a book launch or a, an album launch or a TV party. There was always something. Uh, yeah, I lived off canapes, you know, free drinks and canapes is what I lived off in my 20s. I remember just it being quite hedonistic. You worked hard, but you played even harder. And it was sort of, you know, no sleep, get up. I don't know actually how we did it, but there you go. <laughs> I mean, my son's 18 and he's, sort of, I, I can just see that, you know, the hangover doesn't even begin to exist. And you'd have mm. a few hours sleep, be back on the tube, going to work, going out the next night. Yeah. Yes, exactly the same. My friends and I, when we were all in our junior jobs on magazines, we would all turn up to the office on absolutely no sleep and somehow struggle through, would, you know, go to the canteen, get some ridiculous fry up. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I don't know how I did it looking back. No, and we wouldn't want to go back to that. And now uh, you then entered your 30s, you got married and you had children um, and that you thought um, the drinking would naturally slow down. But I know you've spoken about how you found that with Sunday pub lunches and post kids, um, you know, get kids to bed so you can crack open the wine, um, you were drinking as much as ever. So tell me about the idea, the light bulb moment you had for mindful drinking and, and what led you to write that book? Well, yeah, I mean, probably like a lot of people, when I was pregnant, I found it really easy to not drink. And I mean, there's no peer pressure when you're pregnant. You're, you don't, nobody tries to bully a pregnant person into, into drinking. So it's it was quite easy to not drink. And yeah, you feel queasy quite a lot of the time. It was just sobriety felt easy. And I thought, wow, when I have this baby, 
I'm going to carry on not drinking and I'm just going to be this amazing, new, healthy, sober person. And then the baby was born. And of course, the day after the baby's born, somebody turns up with a bottle of champagne and then the NCT mums, like, you know, turn up with booze and, and then you meet up with your old friends and you want to prove to them that you're still fun, even though you've had a kid now. So you kind of drink more than ever. And there is this whole culture of like mummy's wine time where it's like, oh, the kids are in bed. I'm going to open a bottle of wine. And I found that actually I was drinking more than ever. And not only was I drinking more, I was finding it more difficult to cope with because I was having less sleep, obviously, with, with a baby around and having to get up early in the mornings. And I just felt like I wasn't being the best friend, the best wife, the best mother. The, I, I wasn't doing the best in any part of my life because I would deal with stressful situations or social situations or really any situations by drinking and then be hung over the next day. And it's awful feeling like, you know, you, when you've got your a little baby and this is like very precious time, as you know, it goes very quickly to be kind of lying on the sofa like, oh, I just feel so hung over. It's, um, yeah. I, just, I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to find a way out and I found that you can't just decide to cut down on drinking and do it. It's not that easy. You kind of have to have a strategy and a plan and go into it knowing how you intend to do it. Uh, did you feel vulnerable when writing it? Because you were very open about your own life and your own relationship with alcohol. So that must have been sort of a real decision for you to sort of let people in and so that we could almost maybe empathise and see ourselves in you. Well, it's quite quite interesting because when I was talking to my editor, my, my book editor at the time, when I was writing the book, I obviously interviewed lots of experts for the book and I put together all the best advice and from behavior change and how just tiny tweaks you can make to make it easier to drink less alcohol. And I so I said to my editor, I don't know if it's right to have so much of me in it. I don't feel like my story is that interesting you know I didn't have a rock bottom moment I'm not an alcoholic there are no no huge dramas that would make for a dramatic arc in a book and she said that's exactly why your story is interesting because it's so relatable because most people don't have a rock bottom moment or an alcohol problem you know they they just want to drink less alcohol and they're finding it difficult so I, I felt I felt fine about sharing it because I felt like it's a very common experience. And I do think sharing those experiences can really help when you're, I, I think it's easy to say to yourself, oh, I've really been trying to drink less alcohol. And then I went to this barbecue and I, I thought I would just have one drink, but then one turned into six. And then the next morning I was like, well, oh, might as well have a Bloody Mary now because I've failed. And then you feel like, I just can't do it. I don't have the self-control. You kind of blame yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think understanding that everyone feels like that, I think is part of the, is a big step towards overcoming it because you're not beating yourself up as much. Yeah, there is a, I mean, it's, Frank always talks about my husband's Irish and I think that there's a societal thing, isn't there? That it's, it's like, it's everywhere. You know, we celebrate with alcohol, we commiserate with alcohol, we socialise with alcohol. It's all, it isn't only socially acceptable, it's actually socially expected. Do you think that this is an, a specific UK issue? Do we, ha- I mean, I think we do have a real drinking culture, but through your research and things, I always feel like when we go to uh, Europe or other countries, for sure, they're not drinking like we're drinking. Absolutely. I think certainly in France and Spain and Italy, they there is a drinking culture, but it's not a binge drinking culture to the same extent. Um, and in America, I would say they drink a lot less. My book has it also sold in um, Australia and New Zealand, and I get a lot of messages from there saying it's helped them. I think there's perhaps a similar drinking culture in Australia as there is in the UK, but I, it does feel like quite a British thing. Where do you think it comes from? If you think of British cultural icons from over the last few decades, whether it's George Best or Kate Moss, you know, Drinking is, it's a big part of the whole kind of image. And it's, yeah, it's kind of cool. 
Yeah. Is that like like smoking used to be? I don't think people think smoking is cool anymore, but No, but it was. Exactly. When I used to smoke my 20 silk cup every single day in advertising. I mean, do you know what I mean? It was it was what you did and you didn't quite understand. Well, th- these were times where, you know, I smoked on the tube. Wow. Can you even believe that? I smoked on aeroplanes. Yeah. I mean, I'm from that era. Our children are never going to understand what the hell was going on there. But as you said, it was it was seen firstly it was totally acceptable to light up a cigarette in the middle of a restaurant while people were eating. Um now you couldn't even think of anything. And I'm I'm surprised that drinking doesn't drinking's not going that way, or is it going that way? Well, interestingly, the stats are showing that younger people are drinking a lot less. Younger uh Gen Z, they're much more likely to identify as non-drinkers. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they've replaced drinking with something else or yeah. if they're, or if, I mean, maybe it's because we're all so digital these days. They don't have, you know, when I was a teenager, if you wanted to, if you wanted to meet, meet somebody, yes. you, you went to a bar. Yeah. And, um, and I think now you meet them on the internet. Each week, I'm joined by our wonderful partners at Dell Technologies. They are passionate supporters of small businesses right across the UK through free resources, but also their networks like Dwen, Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, championing female founders and helping them thrive. So this week, they're giving away their ad break to a brilliant female founder to share her story and more about her small business. Hello from me, Georgie, the founder and designer at Lil Wabbit. When was the last time you took a pen and wrote a card to send to someone you love? Too long ago to remember? Well, at Lil Wabbit, connecting people through the traditional means of sending a card is our number one priority. We launched our small business in 2020 when my grandmother passed away and I inherited her watercolour paints. The global events of that year meant people were more segregated than ever and we wanted to do something to help connect them. Since then, me and my fabulous team have grown a little rabbit from our studio on the South Coast and are now fortunate enough to send cards and gifts all over the world. Our aim is simple, to run a business that cares about its customers, its community and its planet. And that's exactly what we do. Our 100% plastic-free packaging and adorable designs teamed with our outstanding service means our customers are always happy. We also have a 50-50 profit split on a selection of specially dedicated charity products and have donated over £8,000 to the registered charity Street Vet since 2021. We take pride in our business and think it's pretty great, and we aren't the only ones. The UK Startup Awards selected our store as a nominee for Online Retailer of the Year 2023. Head to lilwabbit.co.uk and see what you can find. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me what the impact was writing the book on your own life and how did it, how did things change for you? Because you said it wasn't about abstaining altogether from alcohol, more about having a healthy relationship with it, which is really interesting because I think, you know, when you do like dry January or is it October that they have yeah, the sober October, sober October and things? It's basically you do not drink. Mm. Do you think that that's, you know, sometimes I think that would be easier. Like there is just a rule. You just don't drink. And then like I, I had the same in my pregnancy. I absolutely loved not drinking. Yeah. Just was such a nice feeling. Didn't want to drink to start with, but also just did not miss the hangovers didn't felt productive felt healthy do, do you think that what what went on with your own life there because as you, as i said you didn't give it up altogether exactly and that's where the idea for the book came from is that there are lots of books out there about how to give up drinking completely that alan carr one is brilliant but lots of people don't want to give up drinking altogether they want to be able to have a glass of champagne at a celebration or the occasional cold G&T on a hot day. They want to enjoy the occasional drink, but just drink a lot less, just get out of that habitual drinking of whether they drink every day or whether they have work events where it's expected that they drink or whether their social life revolves around drinking. Um, And I think it's that 
it's kind of working out what are the triggers for you and then working on them because like you say it is kind of easier to not drink at all you've just made one decision it's just i don't drink whereas if you if you if you're a moderate drinker then every day it's am i going to drink today what am i going to drink how how much am i going to drink what am i going to say to anyone who tries to pressure me into drinking and um yeah uh, there is no lots of people have friends who really react quite badly to them wanting to cut down on drinking they see it almost as a, a judgment on them when obviously it's not and when i reduced my drinking I, I strongly felt that my friends could drink as much as they wanted it didn't matter to me at all but i think they felt that me not drinking made them feel judged yeah because it's it's the person in the room potentially that's not having as much fun as you or all those sorts of things, which again, as you said, does shine a slight mirror back on yourself or it. And you're right. It's, it's, it's when you can find yourself in a week saying, right, I'm just going to have a very healthy week. Then you find yourself, you've got that work event one evening, then actually you've got a family thing the next night. You've then got, oh, it's, but it's that person's birthday. So I've got that birth. Do you know what I mean? And you always, every week, there seems to be a thing that interrupts the pattern that you want to create. And that's quite difficult. A week that you don't think you're going to drink, you end up drinking quite often in that week. And you're thinking, how is that? Well, that's because you're almost, you've got all these things to answer to. There's lots of things that need your social attention. um, And they want the fun you or the, you know, you know, we'll go and share a bottle of wine here, you know, or I haven't seen you for so long. You know, are you going to turn up and not drink and let that person drink on their own? And I think so many listeners will be listening, knowing that feeling, you know, wanting to do better, but just finding it so hard to change the pattern. Yeah, exactly. And I, so when I started writing the book, one of the key things I realised was it's all about planning. You can't just turn up to a social event thinking, I'm going to try not to drink too much. You really have to look at your week, decide on which days you're going to allow yourself to drink and how much, and then stick to it. Like you have to have a plan in your mind. And when I was talking to a friend about this and she said, but what do you do if you have a few, if you're seeing a few different friends in a week, like if it was my birthday, I would feel like, is my birthday not important enough to be one of your drinking days? And actually, I hadn't even thought of it like that. But it, people do take it really, really personally. And also the whole thing with moderate drinking is you, you kind of get it from both sides because I had um, the sober community kind of criticizing me for saying that it's possible to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. They they would say, you know, any amount of alcohol is too much you, to, to pretend that this is in any way healthy is a lie because alcohol is just bad for you. And then on the other side, I had the drinkers saying, oh, coming over here with your sanctimonious like opinions about cutting down. We should be able to drink whatever we want. And I was like, guys, guys, look, I'm not saying drinking alcohol is healthy. Obviously it's not. I'm just saying if you don't or don't feel like you can give up completely, this these are some tips and tricks and advice for, for to help you cut down if that's what you want to do. Although I have also heard that lots of people who read Mindful Drinking, because lots of it is about alcohol-free days as well, because it's it's easier to have an alcohol-free day than it is to just have one quite often. Um, and people have found that they started having a few alcohol-free days and then started increasing their alcohol-free days. And then they're like, I kind of don't drink anymore. And it's just happened quite great naturally yeah I know I read so many of the reviews and so many people felt enlightened and empowered after reading your book and it's just a real you know the way you've approached it for I would just say for people who want to as you said I don't mean normal people but just everyday folk who need to rebalance yeah it's so fascinating and in 2020 you decided to leave your role as deputy editor of Grazia and pursue your dream of going freelance and obviously at the time the world was in turmoil Uh, We were all living with COVID and lockdowns. Um, And then you received some devastating news in January 2021. And you've been 
so eloquent about your diagnosis. I wonder if you might share with us how you navigated that period of time. Uh, You were just 40 years old with two children. Mm. Yes, I had handed in my notice at work and I was on three months notice. I handed my notice in in October and I was going to finish the first week of January was going to be my last week at Grazia. And it was in just before Christmas, I found a lump on my breast. Um, I went to the doctor, got referred to the breast clinic. It all happened very, very quickly. Um, and then I got my diagnosis on the 6th of January. So it was, it was my last week at Grazia. So my, my kind of new freelance career of, mm. was all kind of on hold. I just, it just became about getting through treatment. And especially at that time, we had just gone into, I think it was the third national lockdown Yeah, when the schools yeah. were all closed. So my husband, my, my poor husband was doing all the homeschooling and kind of all the logistics, trying to work out, trying to find some other parents that we could be in a bubble with to take the kids so that he could drive me to chemo. And um, yeah, it was it was really, really tough. Can I ask, when you found the lump, was this something that just materialised overnight? Yes, completely overnight. Just like that? Yeah, it was one evening in December. I'd had a bath in the evening and I was just like moisturising, you know, and I was like, oh, what's that? I haven't felt that before. And um, and I I went out, to, Jonathan was watching TV and I was like, Jonathan, is this, do you, does that feel like a lump? And he was like, yeah, that's that's massive. Why have we not noticed that before now? Like it was a really, really clear lump. And um, at the GP, she was like, yep, yeah, we're going to refer you. And they, they were, it all happened very, very quickly. It was quite a clear cut case. I think in that respect, I was quite lucky because you do hear about people um, you know, struggling to get the diagnosis and being kind of fobbed off and stuff. But in my case, it was just such a obvious, clear lump. They could see it on the mammogram. They could see it on the ultrasound. It was just very clear cut. And uh, it's, I mean, I can only imagine the shock. And as you said, we were in that crazy period of our lives as well. You started documenting your journey in a Sunday Times column. Um, was that a way of taking control of what was happening to you? Because I asked, because I know when I spoke to Chris Hallingay, um, she spoke about starting her charity Copperfield when she was diagnosed. And it helped her because she was channeling her efforts into something that sort of helped other people. It gave her a positive energy. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I found the same. I found that a cancer diagnosis is just so kind of discombobulating to put it mildly and there are so it's so kind of out of your control and you know these days most of us are very in control of our lives we we, I do not like to not be in control so I found that really really hard and kind of not knowing why this had happened I'm pretty healthy I'm a a moderate drinker (laughs) and um it was it was just such a shock so um, I found that writing about it was quite cathartic in a way, and it really helped me organize my thoughts and how I was feeling, because I feel like if I hadn't have done that column, I would look back on that time now and it would just be a big blur and I wouldn't really know how I felt about it or what I was feeling at the time. But because I was able to kind of articulate it into a, a neat 600-word column pretty regularly throughout that year... Uh, then it it helped me a lot. And I loved getting messages from people. I got so many DMs on social media and emails from people saying it had really helped them. So that that felt like... Yeah, I mean, I read it religiously. It was the favourite... It, it was favourite. Obviously, I didn't want you to be going through it, but I found it so... You, you, uh, you shed a light on something that I feel, you know, you you hear about people getting cancer... And then you hear about whether they recovered or they're going through. Key. You 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 didn't actually know week by week what was going on. And I loved how it wasn't just from your perspective, but the second part of that column was your husband's perspective on how he's looking at his wife. And some weeks it was very emotional, you know, where he felt out of control or looking at the pain you were going through and not being able to do anything. Or, you know, did you come up with that construct? Was that an important part of the construction of this piece? Yeah, absolutely. So he, 
My husband is a journalist. He works at the Sunday Times anyway. He works on the Sunday Times culture section. So normally he interviews celebrities and watches films. That's his that's his normal beat. But um, yeah, the Sunday Times style asked us to write the column together. So it would have both points of view. And I, I thought his point of view was really interesting, actually, because you don't really hear about the people that are caring mm. for the people who are going through it. And it's, yeah, it must be horrible to watch someone you love go through that. It's almost worse than having to go through it, to be honest, because you feel like there's nothing you can do and you want to help. Obviously, he did help in lots of ways, but nothing really that he could do in terms of... Taking it away. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also because it was COVID, he couldn't come to any of the appointments or to chemo or couldn't visit me in hospital after surgery. You know, it was it was really tough in terms of that as well. Absolutely. And you started treatment, initially chemo and then a mastectomy, followed by radiotherapy, then more chemo. And you said you felt like a former shell of yourself by the end of it. Your mind must have gone to some very dark and traumatic places. And you said you lost your hair and your breast, your fertility and your identity. I mean, what a statement. Tell me about those moments. Yeah, it it was, I feel like that was even worse than the initial diagnosis because when I got the diagnosis, I sort of went into business-like mode. I, I was like, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to organize. And I, I need to sort this stuff out. I need to like get, the, get through this, you know, tick off cancer treatment and get better. And I almost, I remember going for a walk in the park with a friend when I was first diagnosed and she said, you know, it's going to be fine. Loads of celebrities have cancer and it's like a thing for a year and then they're fine. <laughs> and I was, it sounds really naive now, obviously. And then, and to anyone who's had cancer or any experience of cancer, but at the time I, I hadn't had any experience no, of cancer. No. And I was just like, oh yeah, I'll just be like, Kylie, you know, I have to have short hair for a while. It will be fine. Like I, I, I was incredibly naive about the reality of it and how it actually feels to go through a process where all your, it's not just losing your hair as well. You obviously lose your eyebrows and your eyelashes and steroids they gave you make you, make you really like sort of puffy and shiny. You just like, you don't look like yourself at all. Um, and then obviously mastectomy surgery is, uh, it's like it's a lot and I I heard someone um compare it to a free boob job and I was like who on earth would ever consider this a free boob job if it's especially when you only have one I only had one mastectomy there's no way it's ever gonna look vaguely like the other one and um my surgeon was like well you know breasts are not twins they're sisters so they they always look a bit different and I was like I don't I don't know Mine, mine looked pretty similar before. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's really hard because it's, you know, it affects your confidence. And then also as well as those physical effects, chemotherapy stopped my period. So I went into menopause, age 40. And they, you know, they sort of gave me the list of side effects of chemo, which is like a million side effects. And one of them was your periods might stop. So that was the only warning I got. And then when it actually happened, I was like, hang on hang on. I didn't know. I mean, at first I was going through chemo, so I had all the side effects of chemo anyway. And then as I emerged from chemo, I was like, why am I, why am I not getting better? Like, why do I still feel so tired and so kind of brain foggy? And so I didn't realize that it was all those symptoms of the menopause that, um, kind of came crashing down on me after treatment. And I was I was so naive about that as well because I knew about hot flushes and nights. Well, sweat. you would think so, that they would tell you much more about that. That's like, you know, putting you into the next stage yeah. of your hormone journey. I mean, literally that. I mean, and and what a way to come out of trying to get better. Yeah. You know, to, you've had cancer. Now, listen. Let me give you a little treat here. Here's the menopause as well, just yeah. to just to top it all off as well. Each week, I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. 
I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact, but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you. Hi, my name is Suzanne Marie Skelton and I've been an Avon rep for just over 15 months and I've been a sale leader for the past eight months. I became an Avon rep because I wanted to be able to offer affordable products as part of my business and Avon just ticked all the boxes in terms of quality and affordability. There are so many positives that have come from having my own Avon business, but one of the main benefits being that it allows me to work from home and be there for my son as I'm a single mum. The difference that Avon has made to my life over the past 12 months is just unbelievable. I became a training ambassador. I was able to pay for Christmas in cash, take my son on day trips without worrying what was in the bank and also invest back in myself as well. I'm so excited for my future with Avon and I'm now in a position where I can help others become successful with their Avon business because if I can do it, then anybody can. And that's the beauty of Avon is that everyone has the potential to build a successful business around their current daily lives. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. It must have been an incredibly hard time for you. And I think what you've done documenting the journey and the wonderful late Deborah James and who spoke on this podcast, Chris Hallengay, who spoke on this podcast, the th- you know you have all changed our language and our sort of landscape around cancer helping us i suppose i don't want to say normalize it but just making it something that we can talk to you know i i always wanted to ask that question about the lump and i've just done that i always wondered is it something that you're just silly and you've just you know had it forever and you know and now it gets a bit bigger or is it just literally you get a lump and I just think that that we don't have or we haven't had enough conversations where and this is exactly what you, you you've done what things kept you going through that time I mean obviously your dearest family and your friends um but things, you know, we, we run so quickly, don't we? And we were just talking about your 20s and 30s and your career and you wanted to go freelance and you were probably at 100 miles an hour. What things kept you going through that period of time? Well, my friends and family and not just in the ways that you might expect. It was the kind of, it was the local mum friends who I didn't, who I didn't necessarily even know that well, who would suddenly just leave a meal on the doorstep or you know, look after the kids when, if I had to go to radiotherapy or just like helping out in those little ways, that was, that was the thing that I found so amazing. Or just going for like long walks when we were allowed to do that outside of mm. the, the COVID restrictions and just kind of talk about it all as well. Cause I, I do think when you're going through cancer treatment, you have to find people that you can talk to about it that are not your um immediate loved ones like your whoever you're living with who's doing most of the caring whether that's a partner or a parent or a child or a friend or whoever it is who's looking after you most of the time in my case it would be Jonathan um I just feel like it's they're dealing with so much already Mm. and I feel like sometimes if you just want to you if you if you just want to cry and and just say how sad and scared you feel, then sometimes it's good to do that with someone else who can Mm. just really sit there with you in the misery and you don't feel like you're just piling more on top of, more trauma on top of your closest person who's already dealing with a lot. So I thought that was really important. My walks with local friends were, they were a lifesaver, definitely. And I also read that when you felt like you were at rock bottom, that you started therapy. Yeah. I hadn't put the two of those together, actually, that during cancer you would need therapy. But now thinking about it, of course, what, what was that a turning point for you? Yes, it was. So, so when I got to the end of treatment, 
I, again, this is about how naive I was about cancer. <laughs> but when I got to the end of treatment, I really expected there to be a point where the surgeon would say, that's it. You've got the all clear. You can, you're free to go. You can live your mm. life. You're cured of cancer. You never have to think about it again. And of course they don't say that. Cancer treatment never wraps up neatly in a bow. It's always, you know, the operation has been successful for now. Do stay vigilant, look out for any symptoms of recurrence. In my case, they told me, because there are several factors that can increase your risk of recurrence. In my case, because it was triple negative, it was in the lymph nodes, it was multifocal. I didn't have a complete response to chemotherapy before surgery, which means there was still some cancer evidence of cancer left in the breast after five months of chemo. And for all those reasons, they said my risk of recurrence was comparatively high, about 40%. So I went into an appointment expecting to be told I had the all clear. And instead I was told there's a 40% chance it might come back. And if it does, it's not, it won't be treatable again. It will be, you know, you'll be on chemo until you die, basically. So I remember just feeling like I was just plunged into this black hole oh. where I, it was worse. That point for me was worse than any other point throughout treatment or the diagnosis. It was, you know, I felt like my whole body has changed. I've got all these menopausal symptoms. I feel I'm not allowed to have, well, it's not recommended that you have HRT because of it can increase your risk of breast cancer recurrence. Oh, I did not know so, that. Yeah. So I I couldn't have HRT. So I had all these menopause symptoms that I couldn't treat. I had so much fear and anxiety about recurrence that just led to this crazy kind of hypervigilance in my body where I'd get like pain in my shoulder and I'd think, oh, that cancer's back, it's in my bones. And I would obsess over it, which would obviously make it worse. And it was just, it was a spiral. At, at one point mm. I was like, why have I survived cancer if this is my life? Like that was my lowest ebb. I just thought I've got to do something to pull myself out of this. So I found a local therapist who is brilliant. And um, she, I, I'd never had therapy before and I can highly recommend it. It's, it's just, just talking those things through just makes such a difference. So it, yes. you wouldn't think that articulating how you're feeling about something would kind of make it would sort of make it become clear if that makes mm. sense she would talk to me about my fears and how they're completely rational but I have to find ways to manage them what was that way of managing how did you look at it so what's worked for me is uh, first of all really practical things so if I get a new little pain or twinge that I fear could be recurrence like a headache or back pain or something then the official advice is you only have to talk to a doctor about it if it's been persistent for two weeks or more. So it's only persistent pains that you need to worry about. So what I would do is put a reminder in my phone for two weeks and then the act of writing it down and setting a reminder almost allowed my brain to forget about it because mm. I would know that reminder is going to ping. So I wouldn't constantly be thinking about it or constantly prodding it. I would just think I don't need to think about that again until that reminder pings. And when it does, if it still hurts, then I'll know it's worth going to see the doctor about. And once you've let your brain forget about it, it always gets better, which, you know, yes. if I, I haven't had cancer recurrence. And that, so the, any pain in my back or headache or whatever is not cancer recurrence. And so it does get better. That has been a really good practical step. I think it was kind of a change of attitude which I kind of got from therapy, which was worst case scenario, if the cancer does come back and it's metastasized elsewhere in my body and, you know, I only have a few years or maybe months left to live, do I want to have spent any of my cancer-free time living time. worrying about it? Yeah, like it's, it's pointless. Worrying about it isn't going to stop it happening. So... That sounds like an easy shift to make in your mind. It's not easy. It definitely takes a bit of uh, building that muscle and trying to. Were you a warrior before? Um, no. no. I'm going to say no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Have you become more of a warrior now? Uh, yes, absolutely. 
Definitely. I think that's, I think that's inevitable. And, and also one thing I want to say that has also helped me in terms of fear of recurrence is doing lots of research into the things that can reduce your risk of recurrence. Yes. Because you yes. can't, you can't ever say do this and you will not get cancer again there is nothing can prevent cancer but there are definitely things that can reduce your risk and um the big one is exercise this is this has been widely reported there have been lots of different studies that show depending on which study you read exercise reduces risk of breast cancer recurrence by anywhere between 30 and 60 percent no massive it's massive they do like that, that is unbelievable. It's crazy. So that, and then there we were thinking about weight loss. Yeah, I know. I know exactly. And they like these studies are like proper randomized controlled trials. Like thousands, hundreds of thousands of women have done these like post breast cancer exercise studies. It's been really, really. The evidence behind it is so solid now, and um. Yeah, they they say my oncologist actually said to me because now I'm out of active treatment, but I do have these uh, infusions every six months for three years, which are for my bones to reduce the risk of recurrence in my bones. And um, she said, if you exercise, that will reduce your risk of recurrence more than those infusions will. That is incredible. Because I was going to say, you're, you, would you say you're cancer-free now is that a term that you do use though? yes yes you're you're cancer-free but you as you said you're now looking at this sort of new stage I suppose which is the preventing rather than the what the hell that you went through and you've learned so much and you've brought it all together in a brilliant book called Reconstruction and I think the title says it all really complete restoration of your body mind and your life so what was the experience like of writing this book because the reviews and the massive praise for reconstruction are off the scale. Many people speaking about how it's completely helped them navigate their own cancer journeys. Um, Do you wish it's the book that you had read um, when you were diagnosed? Absolutely, yes. I mean, there is so, so much that I wish I'd known when I was diagnosed. Um, For example, going into chemotherapy, you're just you're given so many drugs, quite aside from the chemotherapy drugs, which are obviously battering your body in all kinds of ways. You're given medication to cope with the side effects of other medications. So you get like anti-sickness pills and then laxatives because the anti-sickness pills cause constipation and then steroids. And then you get sleeping pills because the steroids cause insomnia. You get injections to boost your white blood cells. And there's and no one ever says, oh, you know, you can boost your white blood cells through eating more veg and getting more sleep and, you know, exercising. <laughs> Nobody ever says that to you. Um, so I I learned there were lots of ways that you can kind of manage the side effects of treatment without having to become like a medical waste disposal unit, which is how I felt at some points during treatment with all the drugs I was taking. Obviously, you have to take all the drugs that are going to cure the cancer, like I'm not saying don't take the chemo. You you do have to do that. But it's just all the other stuff around it. There is so much that you can do, which lifts some of that kind of medical burden on your body, which is already dealing with so much. And then the same with surgery as well. When I went into surgery, I had no idea about um, post-surgical things, which are really, really common, like uh, cording, which is like sort of tough skin under under your arm after breast surgery and lymphedema which is really common nobody told me about it what's that so it's when if you have your lymph nodes removed from under your arm as I did and as lots of women do after mastectomy surgery because that your lymph nodes are the first place that cancer spreads to if it spreads out of the breast in my case there was evidence of cancer in the lymph nodes so they took them all out but I think even if there isn't any evidence yet they take some out as a preventative thing Mm -hmm. so it's really really common and those nodes help the lymph fluid drain from your arm which sort of removes toxins um so if you have them removed then your arm can become really like sore and swollen like in some cases it can swell up massively you can end up with like one massive arm just like full of fluid and one normal arm and what do you do well that you big arm also there's no 
cure. Once you've got it, you can only have to manage the symptoms. So you, what you, they give you like sort of pressure, pressured gloves and sleeves to kind of keep it to keep it under control and um and also being healthy really helps so drinking lots of water helps exercising really helps you know eating really healthily helps all those yeah. things that keep your body functioning in the optimal way will help with lymphedema there were things like that which i had no idea about and obviously the whole menopause thing as well there's a massive chapter on menopause where i go through all of the symptoms and all of the things that you can do to ease them if you've been told that you can't have HRT. I mean, to be honest, that could be a whole book in itself. <laughs> oh, well, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. And you, I just also love, I love that the, you know, you started off with this sort of way of thinking about drinking. You've gone into, from your learnt experience and helping us sort of speak about something that really weighs on so many people's minds. You've got reconstruction, which is again, your learnt experience, but with all that research helping us open a lid on things that should definitely be taught or spoken about far more than it is. And now you've gone and pulled again, this wellness journey that you're on into your newsletter called Well, 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 great title, obviously, would not expect anything less from you, which is a relatable wellness newsletter that's not preachy. And you say it's about rejecting perfection. Why are we and should we be rejecting perfection? Because I think so much of the wellness world is about eat this perfect diet or give up alcohol completely or, you know, do this perfect exercise regime and have this perfect body. And I think it's just off-putting to so many people mm. who think I, I, I'm never going to look like that. And I, I never, I've got a social life. I can't, I can't. It slightly <laughs> repels them, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it, it, it? It actually does the opposite. Exactly. You sort of think, well, wellness is not for me then because yeah. that's not me. Whereas actually your relatable take on all of this is just brilliant because it's digestible for so many of us. And I guess it's a bit like mindful drinking, which was if you drink a lot, then drinking less will obviously make you healthier. You don't have to complete mm. sobriety. It's not like complete sobriety or getting absolutely trolleyed every weekend and there's no middle ground in between. It's kind of finding a way to be as healthy as you can while still having fun, you know, yeah. while still being able to go out for an Italian dinner and eat a bunch of cheesy pasta at nine o'clock at night, which, you know, it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit in with your intermittent fasting schedule. <laughs> you know, I think if you can't do every single thing in life perfectly, then that doesn't mean you should abandon any idea of trying to be healthy. I think there are lots of ways that you can be healthy with and, you know, be healthy 80% of the time and then do what you want in the other 20. <laughs> Rosamond, I just love talking to you. Tell me, I use this podcast in a way to not only draw out brilliant stories such as yourself and that we all learn so much from and you've been so generous, but also that it is a bit of a roller coaster. The whole thing is a bit of a roller coaster. Can I ask you, if you are on your roller coaster, what's been one of your lowest moments on your journey so far? I would say the lowest moment for me was being in hospital after my mastectomy because it was I had this type of reconstruction called Dieppe flap reconstruction have you heard of this I have not no no it's actually incredible so when I knew I was having a mastectomy with reconstruction I assumed that would mean a breast implant but they actually take flesh from elsewhere on your body in my case the abdominal flesh and they move it up and like fashion it into a breast it's a bit frankenstein's monster to wow. be honest and um so and is so that they... better than having a just a, a fake boob put in well there there are pros and cons so it, it's better in terms of it's your own flesh so you yep. don't have a foreign bo body in your breast because i know sometimes there can be issues with breast implants um if it's Sometimes the body kind of rejects it because mm -hmm. it's like a, a foreign object, and and um and then sometimes they have to be replaced down the line. Whereas this is more likely to last, and also because I'm only having one breast 
I only had one side done in my mastectomy. So because it's my own flesh, it will sort of age and droop like right. a normal breast. Yes. Whereas if you have just one, oh yes, I can imagine implant, one stays really pert, and the yeah. other one by your knee. I see what you mean. <laughs> it's the, exactly. Yes. Oh gosh, I'd never thought of it. Yeah. So that so that's the pros, but I guess the cons though. Well, the main downside is that it is a major surgery. It, it like it was a ten hour operation. And I was in hospital for a week and it was just a lot. Like when I came around from surgery, I had a cannula in my hand, one in my foot, in the top of my foot, oh, uh, a catheter. I had uh, three drains hanging out of me. I had um, no husband to help his, you. Yeah, I wasn't allowed any visitors for the whole time I was in hospital and I was in this room on my own and oh, it was, I was just so, so grim. It sounds... It sounds pretty horrific. And can I ask you, then conversely from that moment in that hospital bed, tell me about your greatest high. My greatest moments from this whole experience have been realising the community around it and the cancer community are so, so amazing. And from from early on, because I, you know, I've always used Instagram and I've always shared stuff on social media. So it seemed natural to me to kind of share on there that I'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And the amount of messages and the amount of support I got, it just really felt like, you know, it just really restores your faith in humankind. And people are so kind and they're so keen to help and so keen to share information that might help. And that that's one of the things that I wanted to do with this book, just produce a resource that would help people not only through treatment but also afterwards when they're struggling perhaps psychologically or with ongoing issues and help them be really kind of positive afterwards so um yeah I really feel like it's given me this sense of purpose and I feel like I can really help people and that's that's been amazing well you only have to follow yourself or look at your reviews of your book to know that you really, really are. And you're, you know, for a woman like you who has a way with words, you're just, you know, you're a phenomenal role model. You know, there's not many phenomenal role models. And I think that what you've done for all of us women, being able to share your story firsthand has just been such a privilege for all of us. So I just want to thank you from all of us for what you've done over this journey, which must have been living hell. And yet you still thought of us and you were sharing and things. So I just can't thank you enough for that. It really is um, a beautiful thing. And thank you for sharing your story again with us. I'd love to, if that's okay with you, hand over to you now to read a letter to your younger self. We don't know what you're going to say, but whatever it says, I, I thank you for sharing a part of your soul with us today. Dear Rosamond, Going to a Scottish school with an English accent will teach you a lot about ostracising, loneliness and isolation. At the time, it feels horrible to be an outsider, but the experience will give you empathy, resilience and an ability to adapt to most situations. You'll be a social chameleon and when you get a job in journalism, an industry packed with privately educated Oxbridge graduates... They will have no idea you grew up in a single parent family wearing charity shop clothes and eating free school meals. Your parents think that they're being kind by telling you their divorce isn't your fault. They don't know that you absolutely didn't think it was until they said that. But once they did, you become convinced it must have been. When you have children of your own, you will realise it wasn't. And when your kids get to the age that you and your sister were during their divorce, four and six, You'll have a newfound understanding of what they must have been through, how hard it must have been for dad to leave and for mum to raise you on her own. It won't necessarily put you off marriage, but it does mean you know it's not a fairy tale ending. It makes you clear-eyed about what you want from romantic relationships. You will meet a man who's not only handsome, cool and funny, but also sensitive, kind and organised all of which is put to the test when he has to support you through a cancer diagnosis during a pandemic and he passes with flying colours. You enter your teenage years as the Britpop era is kicking off. Pre-internet, you're obsessed with magazines giving a window into that world. Smash hits in just 17, then Sky and Select, all now sadly folded. 
I wish you would keep your 90s merch. Never throw out any band t-shirts. It will blow your mind to know that nearly 30 years on from the release of Park Life and Miss Shapes, you're a 42-year-old arranging childcare to go and see Blur and Pulp live with your husband this summer. But not as much as it will blow your mind to hear that your cherished CD rack will one day be completely obsolete. You will be addicted to sunbeds in your 20s. I mean, the horse has bolted now, but I wish I could tell you, please don't for the sake of your 40-something skin. It will take until about the age of 40 before you realise that no is a complete sentence. You don't have to be liked by everybody. You don't have to explain yourself to anyone. Right now, you're desperate to grow up, desperate to get out of that Scottish village, desperate to have your own job, flat and life. I wish I could tell you that feeling you have never really goes away. Even when you get your dream job, you'll be looking at the next step. And when you get a flat, you'll barely have any time to enjoy it before you start wanting a house, then a better house. It will take a cancer diagnosis to help you learn how to stop and enjoy the moment rather than constantly thinking what's next. Because right now is pretty good. And really, it always has been. So lovely. So lovely. Thank you so, so much. As I said, you're you're one of a kind. You really, really are. And um, I know so many people will be, yeah, we're just in awe of you and your strength and determination, your beautiful letter, your beautiful kind heart. And it's a reminder to all of us, isn't it? <clears throat> just going to keep it together a little bit here, just to uh, smell the roses, you know, us women are all busy women, aren't we? And we're all at 100 miles an hour, including myself. And you just, you know, it takes you to stop us, you know, and what you went through um, to remind us that it's the little things. It's the little things. And, and for me, I won't forget this hour that we've spent together today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Holly. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm-hmm.